0: Throughout the time working there, there was a, like an older chef to party always tell me like, hey, like, you know, you're not good at this. Like, go do something else. And even at home, when I cooked for my older brother, um, like I'll cook him a pork when and I'll overcook it. Come on, I'm like 16 year old. And he'd be like, hey, you know, like, you don't have to be a chef. You know, there's other things out there you can do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When Khan Nguyen was a child, picking herbs and helping in the kitchen was his mother's way of disciplining him for errant behavior. But he grew to love the connection he was forming with both the ingredients and techniques that underpin the food of his Vietnamese heritage. It led to a career in food and a determination to take Vietnamese and Southeast Asian cuisine to new heights down under. Khan, you've been making a name for yourself with some extraordinary dishes like pork lattice wellington and barn mi on croot. Where do these ideas come from?
0: Um, <laughs> I guess all these ideas come from lying in bed late at night or early in the morning just thinking about what I could do that's different and exciting. Um, I guess... A lot of it is also inspiration from, you know, traveling around and eating around. Um, I eat a lot. I love eating out, um, just, you know, checking out restaurants and seeing new things. And yeah, in the last 12 years of my career, I've spent, you know, a lot of money investing in eating out and kind of just learning about different things and, You know, sometimes when I think about a dish or, like, I want to create a new dish, it's just things pop into my head from, you know, places that I've eaten. Sometimes, like, I can walk on the street and I can smell, like, a scent coming from a restaurant and i would be like, you know, something just pops in my head and I wouldn't know where it comes from. But, yeah, like, I guess inspiration can come from anywhere.
1: Well, that uh, pork crackling lattice is pretty extraordinary. Um, What were the challenges in getting that right?
0: So um, with the, I think, second lockdown in Melbourne, um, the first lockdown was a bit of a write-off. It was just like me working my ass off, trying to get busy enough so I can employ my staff again, because everyone was kind of stood down right. And um, so that was just, it was hard, the first lockdown. And then we reopened for three weeks and um, got into lockdown again. And with the second lockdown, I was like, you know, I need to do something different. I need to learn a new skill because the first lockdown I didn't really do much, you know, of anything that's, you know, self-development. So I always wanted to make pate on crude. It was something that, um, looked really hard to do. Um, I was kind of like scared of doing it because, you know, how do you put raw meat into a pastry and then cook it? And then, you know, it comes out of cooked pastry, cooked meat. And then, um, when i want to learn something i kind of just go at it until i kind of until i tire myself out basically (laughs) so um i think the first uh maybe two or three weeks of doing this patio on current like i did it every single day and i'll do it for hours a day um wow like um there was a lot like and i didn't want to just do a normal pate on crout as well so the first one i did was a bun mi flavored one um, so it was you know the usual flavors of a bun mi vietnamese pork roll um, but inside i had like a soft melting like a chicken liver pate which like oozed out as you kind of cut into it um, i wanted to kind of up that and um one of my friends said i wonder what a pad thai pate on croot would look like and like I've only had like a handful of times in my life but I kind of knew what it tasted like and I knew there was egg in it so I was like you know what would be cool if I had eggs inside the pate on crew cooked perfectly with a runny yolk and um, it actually like I've seen it done before Josh Nyland did one many years ago at Cafe Nice Um, so it was inspired by that and yeah just like cooking it to the Perfect temperature where you can cut into it and the egg yolk just oozes out. It's, um, I don't know, I just kind of got lucky as well, I guess. Like it, it worked the first time, and um, from then I just, you know, I learned how to make short crust pastry. And there's a chef in um, Europe, in London, that I've been following called um, Callum Franklin, and he does really amazing things with pastry as well. So I guess a lot of the inspiration is also from him. And again, just what can I do differently? Uh, what can I wrap in pastry? So you know, I wrapped the whole chicken in pastry, which I spent like two or three hours decorating it. Um, and like what I did was I stuffed the chicken with eggs as well in the cavity. And when we cut it open, um, pulled the pastry off, the chicken was like steamed inside the pastry, all the fat oozing into the, in the pastry, which was delicious. And then I cracked open the eggs, and there were soft-boiled eggs, like still runny yolk. And basically, you just kind of like break off the pastry, dip it in the yolk, and it was pretty amazing. Um, And then, yeah, I wrapped the whole fish in pastry and just kept wrapping things in pastry. And I was like, you know what? This pastry thing is probably going to get boring soon, so I need to do something different. (laughs) And um, and then I thought, oh, wellingtons. Um, I've never made a wellington before. And I was like, am I just going to make a normal Wellington though? Um, It was my first time ever making it and I wanted to do it different. And I was like, how can it be different? And I was like, how cool would it be if I um, wrapped it, made a pastry out of pork skin and wrapped the shortcrust pastry in that? And you know, initially I told a lot of people about it and they're like, yeah, nah, it's not going to work. But like with, Almost everything I do when I tell people, they're like, nah, it's not going to work. Sounds a bit crazy, eh? But then, um, yeah, it just – yeah, I got lucky and it worked. And then now, like, I've kind of developed a recipe where it is, you know, really doable. Like, it's um, – there's a proper technique to it now and it's kind of like a 99% success rate. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that.
1: Before we talk about the, um, your food – uh, that you're doing at the moment and you, you'll be opening a new restaurant soon as well. Um, can you take us back to when you first started and started getting interested in, interested in food?
0: Yeah, so I got interest, interested in food at a pretty young age. Like, I was probably like seven or eight years old. Um, like, back then, living at home with my parents, um, obviously I was really young. And cooking, I mean cooking would always be like my mum's job and like when I get like in trouble at school or something she would just make me help her like pick herbs and like it was meant to be boring like it was meant to be like here yeah, you go pick all these herbs or like whatever and I actually loved it I was like oh cool and then it's just like at that young age where I learned you know where I can watch my mum use a knife and she can use it properly you know she's quick at cutting things and it's I just thought that it's a skill that you can constantly develop and get better at and there's, you can never stop learning, right? And um, so that's where I started loving cooking and food. And at the same time, my parents always loved fresh food as well. Like we used to like set up nets in the river near our house and illegally catch mud crabs. <laughs> um, my dad wow. would drive out for hours to the farms and he'll bring back like ducks and chickens and he'll run around the backyard. And I'd I'd be like maybe, yeah, about eight years old and I'll come home from school and my mum will call me to the backyard and she's like, hey, can you hold this chicken for me? So she'll pluck out the feathers around the neck area and then she'll slit its throat and I'll be like eight-year-olds sitting there holding a chicken upside down, watching it bleed out. You know, I think most kids would be scarred for life, but I loved it. (laughs) I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) And um, so I think it was like, around that age that I was like you know what I want to be a chef like at such a young age I was like already thinking that this is going to be my career and um, then I started high school obviously had food tech as one of the one of the courses and um, sorry the phone's ringing so food tech as one of the courses and uh, the more I cooked the more I loved it Um, a part of it is me because I loved eating and um, I loved you know, trying different flavors. And um, and then in the senior years of high school, um, they put us through work placement, a part of the hospitality course where you go into a restaurant for a week and kind of just suss out how it is in the kitchen. And uh, again, I fell in love. It's like, I just remember it being such a fun environment where, you know, prep time, you can pump up the music. Everyone's having a bit of banter, obviously still doing work. Um, bantering and just having fun, laughing, and then service time—you get that adrenaline rush. And yeah, as soon as I finished high school, actually, I was going to drop out of high school at the end of year ten to cook. But you know, growing up in an Asian household, my mum would be like, "You know, your aunties and uncles are never going to stop talking about this. You, you need to finish high school. <laughs> like, you can't just drop out. You know, you'll make me lose face, enough. You know? came to Australia, worked so hard to put you through school and now you just want to drop out and I'm like, okay mum, <laughs> I'll, I'll finish year twelve, which I'm so glad I did because I don't think I'm that smart. <laughs> I think if I dropped out early I'd be pretty dumb. <laughs> but um, yeah so as soon as I finished year twelve, I like signed up at like a group training place where they like find restaurants or jobs for you as an apprentice chef. And I think I had like five or six different interviews around like different the cafes and cafeterias and stuff and I never heard back from them um, but actually rewinding while I was in year 11 and 12 I worked at Macca's um, for a couple of months and then I worked at Subway where um, I eventually came became the supervisor at Subway um, but you know I always kind of loves to be around food so when I dropped out of high school I was like you know what? I'm gonna work in a proper kitchen now and, you know, start my apprenticeship and, you know, start cooking for the rest of my life. And, yeah, I, I had a five or six different interviews with this group training place where they, you know, got the interviews for me. But I didn't get any luck. Like, you know, I got interviewed and I don't know what it was, but they just didn't want me. Like, I just haven't heard back from them or they're like, oh, that's not what, what we're after. So, you know, I was like, all right, I'm just going to go out there and hand my CV to a restaurant where I really want to work at. And back then, it was Red Lantern because obviously it's, you know, one of the best Vietnamese restaurants in the country. They're awarded and they've got, you know, great chefs that work there. So I went out there, handed in my CV and um, had my interview, had my trial, and I absolutely loved it. And at that point, there was other people getting interviewed as well. And um, you know the funny thing is, right when I got the job, they told me, well, the sous chef told me, he's like, you know what, the other people that interviewed and trialed, we never heard back from them. That's why you, <laughs> that's why you got the job. And I'm like, wow, Are you serious? And like throughout, like the time working there, there was a like an older chef de party with always tell me, like, hey, like, you know, you're not good at this. Like, go do something else. <laughs> and you know what? Even at Macca's, they were trying to bully me out of it. Like, I don't know if I was bad in the kitchen or what. but like, I wasn't <laughs> a smart ass. I tried to put my head down and work my ass off. But I don't know. Just something about it wasn't good enough. And, um, yeah, so Macca's. And even at home, when I cooked for my older brother, um, like, I'll cook him a pork loin and I'll overcook it. Come on. I'm like... 16 year old and I overcooked this pork loin and he'd be like hey you know like you don't have to be a chef you know there's other things out there you can do like and funnily enough it's a, it was a pork loin that I overcooked right <laughs> and um, he's like there's other things out there you can do and I'm like you know what I'm gonna prove you wrong um, but then starting at Sub, uh, at, at Red Lantern um, there was a you know the older guy that was also the same so I worked there for two years and like I, I achieved a lot in two years there. Um, I guess like, I worked my way through the whole kitchen, made it to the pass. And when it was time to leave, I wanted something challenging. I wanted something hard. I mean, the hours at Red Lantern weren't bad at all for, you know, what I kind of eventually learned the industry norm is like, but then, you know, I heard about a restaurant called the um, And, you know, they were known as the hardest kitchen in Australia. And I was like, you know what, I want to do this. I know it's going to be good for me. Um, So then did my trial. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but, yeah, it was like a 16-hour trial. (laughs) (laughs) And um, my foot was aching and, like, and then I got the job, which I was excited about, but also, like, really, like, kind of shitting myself, like, shit, am I going to be able to do this, Um, you know? it's it's long hours all the chefs there work their asses off and um, I actually remember my first day so before my first day I was like I went to the gym and trained with a mate and I kind of jumped on a treadmill right and some reason the treadmill was on like full ball but no one running on it so I didn't notice it was on I jumped on the treadmill and it just shot me off the treadmill (laughs) I hit the wall and like my ankles were screwed like it was like I don't know why I didn't I never got it checked up but it was like I next day I woke up I couldn't barely walk and this was my first day at Bacass for a 16 hour shift so I was like limping around and like it was so bad that after a year my ankle wasn't healed fully recovered yet so yeah I remember after my first day um went home slept for like three hours because, you know, I was just worried about the next day, scared, shitting myself like, oh man, am I going to be able to get the prep list done? And then I remember that morning waking up to the second day at work. Uh, I woke up, I was in tears. <laughs> I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, why am I doing this? Like, is it worth it? Like, you know, my body's aching and I've, it's only my second day. Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? And I was like, you know what? I've already made that decision that I'm going to be a chef, and I can't go back from it. Like, I just can't. Like, no matter how hard is it uh, how hard it is, I'm just gonna push through it. And you know, after a few months, the crazy out, crazy weeks has kind of got a bit easier. And then you know, it just became norm where I can work like eighty five hour weeks, ninety hour weeks, and I wouldn't really be that tired because. At the end of the day, I'm always tired anyway. (laughs) So you kind of just get used to being in a state of being tired always. And yeah, you get used to it.
1: Bacasse had many amazing chefs through its kitchens and had a real influence at that time. Well, what were some of the things, uh, is there any dishes that you remember uh, doing from that era that have lived with you beyond that?
0: I think what drew me to um, Bikass was um, like the nose to tail cooking, where you know, on a plate, you can have like different parts of the animal. Um, like, like I remember a pork dish, like, you had the pork loin, you had to debone the tails, which got braised in like a jus, and that was garnish, uh, one of the garnishes. And it was just, you know, a lot of the dishes were technical and. Yeah, there was a lot of work on the plate to actually produce the food which is what i loved and i mean it's sad that sometimes diners can't see that like they just see a plate of food and they're like to they eat it is it delicious or not and that's it but you know the beauty of food is um that something can look simple as well and there can be you know many hours of prep that goes into it like for example our our roti with vegemite curry that's on our menu so that's kind of become our signature dish. And when you receive it, you have the roti itself, the Vegemite curry, and a little pool of like curry oil in it. And um, like people don't know that the Vegemite curry itself has like 30 or 40 ingredients in it. Wow. It takes like over an hour to make. And there's a lot of techniques that's involved with that. And then the roti itself, you've got to make the dough. It needs to rest for at least like four hours before you can flip it you're going to flip it until it's like thin enough to be translucent until you can see through it um and then um you know having a technique to roll it to encase butter into it and just you know rolling it in a way where you know when you cook it it, you know you get the best out of it so yeah that um so going back to like where i was working so after the You know, they were going to announce that they were closing. And at that point, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what restaurants to work at. And, you know, at the time, Miss G's, Dan Hong's restaurant, was um, pretty big. So this was maybe, I mean, they're still pretty big. But like eight years ago, there were like, you know, one of the coolest restaurants out, right? So um, I wanted to work there. But then Dan, funnily enough, messaged me out of nowhere on Twitter and said, hey, I'm opening a restaurant, Um, do you want a job? And like this is just like I'm just looking up to Dan Hong, right? I didn't really know him on a personal level and he just messaged me out of nowhere um, to open Mr. Wong with him. Um, So it was a massive step for me because the house was 25 seats and we did 25 covers a night, um, sometimes like 30 or 40 depending on the PDR. And then moving on to Mr. Wong being a 240 seat doing over 500 covers a night was like, it was pretty scary. Like, how do I go from 25 covers to five over 500 covers? And um, yeah, before I started, I was like, um, I wanted to, you know, give it my best go. And I said to myself, I want to be the sous chef at this place eventually. And that's kind of was my goal. Um, and funny enough, Um, when I started at Mr. Wong, Red Lantern called me back to offer me the head chef position. And at that point, I was like 20 or 21 years old. And, you know, I kind of asked myself if I went back to Red Lantern, like something I've already done. Like I do love the place and love the food, but I've already done it. And if if I do take that head chef position, am I going to grow to where I want to be? Like, you know, all the learning is going to be you know, all from myself and how much what I do outside of work, right? But if I stayed at Mr. Wong, then I can learn from their systems, learn from Merivale. So I stayed there and within maybe two or three months, I became the sous chef. And um, yeah, I spent three and a half years at Mr. Wong, which it um, was really a, a rewarding because I think, I mean, I love the food. It's super delicious. But you know what I loved about working there was um, just the managing and the leadership uh, leadership skills that you learn. working there because it's a team of over 40 chefs in the kitchen. And I think if I wanted to learn to be a leader in the kitchen, that would that's probably the perfect place to learn because you've got so many heads that you're going to look after. And um, after that three and a half years, I um, entered a few competitions. Which I didn't do very well in. Um, I think a lot of a, a lot of it was because I doubted myself. Um, so I went into these competitions. I made it right to the end, but at the back of my head, I was like, "Am I ready to win? Like, do I really want to do this? Um, like, if I do win, what comes with it? Am I ready for that?" And I just I was just doubting myself for the whole time. Right. So while I was in the competition, before I even um, got right to the end, I told myself I'm not going to win this but I told myself in two years time I want to enter them both again and hopefully do better right, so after Mr. Wong I did my internship at NOMA for 10, 11 weeks when they were in Sydney where mm-hmm. I learned a lot about native ingredients and um, yeah and like after that I didn't know what I was going to do as well so I bumped to Brent Savage because obviously he took over the space afterwards for Cirrus Dining and he offered me a job and, you know, he kind of asked, what do you want? And I was like, I just want to learn more and I want to see different things. And he's like, oh, come work for me. It's perfect. i got three different restaurants. You can work around the restaurants and learn as much as you want. And that's what I did. And, um, you know, I, I started as just like a chef de party, just wanting to learn. But then within a few months, he was like, hey, do you want to be sous chef? at any of my venues, and I was like, um, you know what, Like, I, at that point, I was pretty young still, so I was like, I can't just go into a restaurant as sous-chef and tell people how to do things as a new guy, you know? So I was like, you know what, I'll be sous-chef at CRS when it opens, and that's kind of what happened. Um, and during my time there, I entered those two competitions again. Uh, did worse than the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and um, it kind of just put me in a position where I was like, what am I doing with myself? What am I doing with my life? Um, is just, you know, I started doubting myself again. And there was just one day I just decided, um, you know what? Like the next job opportunity I get, no matter what it is, I'm just going to take it. And a week later, like by coincidence, I get a phone call from Adi, which is the owner of Sunda. And um, that's where it kind of came about and everything just fell into place like a coincidence. Like, yeah, it's pretty amazing how it all happened.
1: Well, you have put absolutely everything of yourself into Sundar and it's recognized across the whole country as one of, you know, Melbourne's best restaurants and also leading the new wave of dining in Australia. Um, You've won many awards already and you're still quite young. Well, tell us a bit about Sundar and your food there and how it's evolved.
0: Yeah, so um I guess when the opportunity came for Sunda, I like I didn't have much time to plan about it, but we kind of knew when the restaurant was going to open and when I was going to move to Melbourne. And um like I planned a holiday before I moved to Melbourne, uh, traveled to Vietnam and I basically spent a lot of money. Um so I kind of came to Melbourne and I didn't bring anything with me. Like I brought a duffel bag and a suitcase, a bit of clothes, um, a laptop with all these recipes in it. And um, that's all I had, right? And a month or so before opening, we went on a research trip to Singapore, Malaysia, and um, Indonesia. And during the trip, I lost my phone. And on my phone, I had like 10 years worth of like ideas and recipes Like, ready to open a restaurant one day, and you know, I was gonna put it into use. But then I lost my phone, didn't have it backed up, and like, I was kind of broken. Like, because my whole dream was to open a Vietnamese restaurant, and then all my ideas were just lost. But then, you know, part of me said, you know, I'm on this trip already. Um, Addy has obviously taken me on this trip for me to get inspiration. So I'm just gonna make the most out of this trip. And show that I can get inspired by, you know, my surroundings and what I do. So when Sunda opened, I guess a lot of the influencers was from Indonesia, Malaysia, because that's kind of you know what happened there. And um, and then when I did lose my phone, I you know, bought a laptop and I worked my ass off, like literally sitting on my laptop for like twenty hours a day. I've probably spent like hundreds of hours on the laptop writing recipes so when Sunda opens I've got recipes to you know change the menu around a bit and just kind of keep evolving right and after our first week of opening Sunda my house got broken into and they stole the laptop <laughs> And um, again, I didn't back it up. I just didn't learn. So like I had like over 100 recipes and it was like hundreds, if not thousands of hours working on these recipes, researching. And yeah, it was like another tough blow. But like I kind of just every time something like that happens, I'm like, you know what, like maybe it's a good thing. Maybe if I just stayed, you know, in that mind frame and using those same recipes, we we might not evolve the way I want it to. Um, So I guess when we first opened, it was, um, you know, casual fine dining. Um, It was, you know, there was still an a la carte menu. And, you know, I wanted to use a lot of native ingredients because um, at that point, at one point when I was doing my intern at NOMA, I asked Rene Redzepi, why does he do all foraging and all that kind of stuff? and he says that's just who he is The the food like you got to cook you know in a way to pr- um to show who you are so you know i'm Vietnamese australian um and i've i was born and grew up in australia so i need to kind of cook you know southeast asian food with native ingredients and that would be me and he's like you know no one else can be you like you're unique to yourself and like if you just cook like that you would always you know find inspiration and be better so yeah so Sunda is a Southeast Asian restaurant Um, we've just turned into a set menu only restaurant Um, and yeah I love using native Australian ingredients Um, I think the main reason is because uh, with Asian food there's obviously a lot of it is about balance you know sweet sour salty uh, spicy, and a lot of native ingredients are either bitter or sour. And by using a native ingredient in place of lime or, you know, uh, acidic ingredient to balance it out, it really works. And, you know, when I first started cooking using native ingredients, I was really surprised of how well it worked with Asian food. And um, I guess, like, Kylie Kwong was also one of the inspirations behind using native ingredients as well. And, um, yeah, that's what Sunna is today.
1: You mentioned about uh, that you're Australian-born with Vietnamese heritage. What's it like translating Vietnamese cuisine in a, an Australian context and, and finding your own voice in your food? Is there challenges involved?
0: Um, I think, like, when when I was talking to Dan Hong at one point and I told him I wanted to do a refined Vietnamese restaurant, one of his... Um, tips was if you can't do it better than the original don't do it at all and um, that kind of stuck with me but I I guess the food at Sunda I mean some of the dishes are based on a traditional dish but the end result is nothing like the traditional dish if that makes sense like for example another one of our signature dishes the otta otta so it's traditionally like a fish cake um, that's you know Shaped into like a rectangle, wrapped in banana leaf and then grilled. But our version is uh, so the fish cakes is like curry, curry flavored. So our one, I make a, a seafood um, curry base and set it into a parfait. And top it with crab. So that's the like Indonesian, Malaysian influence, right? And then it's also garnished with finger lime, which is the native Australian ingredient that we use in it. And there's also like sweet fish sauce gel over the top of that. And that's obviously a staple in Vietnamese cooking. So I guess every single dish can have influences from all around Southeast Asia, but not actually being that dish, if that makes sense. Uh,
1: At the top of the show, we we mentioned briefly that you will be opening a a new restaurant. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: So the new restaurant um, is called Aru. That's A-R-U. So the name is... Um, named after a group of islands that is based um, near Indonesia, northern uh, to the north of Australia. And they used to um, like do trades, like the Makan people, which is like the Indonesians back before European settlement, used to actually trade with the Aborigines. Um, and we chose that name because in that you know, time, like the main source of cooking was cooking over fire and there was a lot of you know preserving and fermenting and you know all those kind of fun things i guess and um we wanted to base a restaurant around that so um the restaurant is going to be you know based a lot over cooking over direct flame um we will do a lot of preserving and fermenting um And, uh, yeah, hopefully we're going to have, like, suckling pig on the menu that's been dry-aged and roasted, you know, on the bone. Um, So it all kind of came about where I love roasting, like, ducks and pigs and stuff, right? And, yeah, that's kind of going to be the main focus point for that restaurant.
1: Mm. At the top of the show, we talked about the incredible – Things you've been doing with paté on crude and the pork Wellington with the crackling, uh, replacing the pastry lattice work. Um, pork is so integral in many southeast uh, Southeast Asian cuisines, um, particularly Vietnamese. What's what's some of the things that you use uh, pork for on the menu?
0: Um, so at the moment we offer two menus. Um. One of it is the Kla- Sunna Classics menu, and the other one is the full the Experience menu. And um, yeah, by coincidence, both of the main dishes is pork at the moment. Um, <laughs> so for the Sunna Classics menu, we've got um, pork cutlet that we uh, marinate in rainforest tamarind, and then we sous vide it at 57 degrees. And then we basically just burn it on the grill, like. We we char it to the maximum, and if we don't char it enough, we put out the blowtorch and we torch it, so it's like even more charred. But like it's just so delicious because there's so much sugars in the marinade that caramelizes, so it doesn't taste like a burnt piece of meat, but it just tastes like a deep caramel that's you know slightly bitter and rich. Um, so that gets garnished of like a like a rhubarb and rainforest tamarind jam, um, and then the main other main course for the full experience venue is. Um, Again, pork, but this time pork belly. So it's a bit fattier. Um, we dry age it for a week upstairs, and then we cure it in wattle seed salt. Um, and then that, again, gets slow cooked overnight for 12 hours and then gets grilled. That gets garnished with like a, a raspberry sauce. And um, like I think with pork, fruits always work really well with it, like you know, apple, plum, raspberries. Just something sharp and acidic to cut through that fattiness. Um, kind of always wins for me, I guess.
1: You mentioned uh, numerous occasions through your career when you've had chances to um, move up the ranks, but you're nervous about um, leading people and whether you were, it was you were, it was the right time to um, be a leader in brigades. What's it What's it been like for you being in a kitchen and part of a team, and then moving to lead one?
0: Yeah, so I guess like for me when. When I started cooking, I kind of set a timeline for myself and I told myself I wanted to be a head chef by the time I was 25. And by the time I reached 25, I had job offers from like from Vietnam, London, like a lot of people that I've worked with that moved on to move overseas, tried to get me to open restaurants with them. But finally, like I wanted to be a head chef by the time I was 25, but right up until i was 26 27 i had all these offers but i told myself i wasn't ready but um i guess i was sous chef for a while like i was sous chef at mr wong for three years and then at with the bentley group i was sous chef there for almost two years one and a half years and i kind of always try to approach it in a way where i need to be that guy where i can build relationships with the team um where they can approach me with issues and For a long time when I was sous chef, that's what it was like. So you know, people, when they screwed something up, they wouldn't go to the head chef. They would come to me because I was like the good cop, right? And I would (laughs) try to figure it out with them and we'll figure it out and try to fix it and make it work. And I was like, you know, when Sunda opens, I'm going to carry on and being that good cop and I'm going to be that nice guy where people can come come to me about anything, um, you know, issues in their personal life, they can come and talk to me about it. But when it opened, I just turned into a totally different person, like the total opposite. Like I, I was kind of – I admit that I was a bit horrible because there was so much weight on my shoulder because I moved to Melbourne and I have nothing. I moved here with like a duffel bag of clothes and I was like, I can't fail. So I, you know, whatever happens in the restaurant, it would always be my fault. Like if something screwed up, it would be my fault. So there was just so much pressure on me to make it work because I didn't want to fail. And um, I think it took me a good, maybe six months to a year where I kind of realized that I need to stop being an asshole. Like, I mean, my chefs respected me and they stayed with me, but it just wasn't sustainable. And that's when um, I kind of just spent more time outside of the kitchen and sat down with them to actually talk about things. I think um, one of the biggest thing I missed the wong where I took away from it was when I left um, one of the things they asked me was if you were to do it again what would you have done differently? And I said I wanted to sit down with all the chefs and you know have a conversation with them. And but I never ended up doing it right. But they were like, you know, before you leave I want you to do that just that. And, and I sound simple, but I only had, like, less than a month left. There was over 40 chefs that I had to catch up with, which was tough. But, you know, when you sit, sit down with, you know, a person and just talk to them openly, like, they just open up in a way where you can't get that when you're, like, if you're just standing in the kitchen and prepping and talking, like, they won't open up to you. But when you actually sit down and have that conversation, you will... You know, notice a lot of things, and they will tell you a lot of things that you didn't know in the past. So I started doing that with my team at Sunda, and again, like I learned a lot of things about my staff, about what they do outside of work, about their struggles outside of work. And I think when you kind of understand that, you know, people don't just come to work because I don't know. For me, when I was younger, I came to work, and whatever happened outside of work, is outside of work, and I just worked my ass off, put my head down. It didn't matter what I was doing. I wanted to do it the best I could do it. But then, you know, not everyone is the same and not everyone's like me. So I eventually learned that I have to, you know, work through these struggles or these difficulties that my staff have outside of work with them. And, you know, it's only made the relationship a lot stronger as as we grow.
1: Well. Khan, you are an amazing leading light in Australia's new wave of dining and it's been an absolute honour to have you on The Crackling today
0: Thank you very much.
1: Please keep in touch and we very much look forward to seeing what you do with Aru and the future success of Sunda um, and we'll talk again soon
0: Thank you, great chat to you
1: This is The Crackling a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar I'm Anthony Huckstep Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.